The Dickheads are presented in color. Hey, dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from Southern California to your brain hole. I am your host, David Agronoff, bringing you a special uh, bonus interview. Uh, We are going to be focusing on probably mostly Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and Blade Runner and that whole universe because we're going to be talking about its connection to animal rights issues and themes. Now, my guest to talk about that very special topic, look, I could go on all day about that. Everyone knows I've been vegan for a bazillion years. I'm Gandalf age in in, uh, veganism. But um, I got somebody else who's very interested in the issues too, Uh, Dr. Cheryl Vint uh, from the University of California, Riverside, who her research focuses on speculative fiction and the relationships between science and technology. She works broadly within a whole like Marxist cultural studies tradition. She has seven or eight books at this point. Um, how many books are we looking at now, Cheryl? Eight? Maybe. I honestly I didn't count beforehand, so your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> I think we're at eight, yeah, uh, including uh, Science Fiction, A Guide for the Perplexed, The Wire, and Animal... Uh, my dyslexia really hates this title animal alterity <laughs> alternity yes. Um, yes and uh this is a really really great book about animal rights themes and science fiction i uh this book was like basically designed for me in a lot of ways so i'm like really slowly working my way through it and finding great stuff um but anyways uh cheryl welcome to the dickheads podcast um we're very excited to have you here and talk about these issues. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. And uh, uh, you might be interested to know my publisher didn't super like that title either, but I did. So I sort of argued them into keeping the title, but they wanted a more accessible title. So maybe I should have listened. (laughs) (laughs) You've been studying science fiction and researching it uh, professionally but uh, where did you grow up and how did you get involved with science fiction just as a reader before we get into the academic stuff? Yeah, sure. Um, And I'm kind of accidentally on this career path, I guess. So I could talk a little bit about that if you want to, because it's... uh, Absolutely. Tell the folks about your story. I'm sure there is. I mean, it wasn't really a career path when I got on it and everyone was kind of like, you know, you, you need to study real literature, not science fiction. And then um, the Animal Alterity book was my second book. And when I started to work on it, I told everyone like, oh yeah, I'm gonna write this book about animals and science fiction. And people kept saying to me like, are you sure there are any? Like they thought it was like a terrible idea for a book. So (laughs) it's not really any kind of like good planning that got me here. It's just a a set of contingencies. So I grew up um, in Manitoba in Canada, um, Mm. and I grew up on a farm, actually, so I've always been around animals, and um, and I think it was only when I really started working on the Animal Alterity book that I started to take my interest in animals and combine it with my scholarly interests, Um, but certainly I, I was always around animals. I've always had companion animals of various sorts um, because I've always lived closely with them. Questions that are really at the heart of some of the animal study stuff about like, 
you know, can they be communicative or can they think? Like these were never really questions for me because I spent a lot of time with them, interacting with them and communicating with them. So it was always very clear to me that they did have um, senses of agency and and desires for certain things, et cetera, et cetera. So. Right. And, um, but science fiction, were you always a science fiction reader or did you have early interest in this or did that come about later? No, that kind of got later. That's kind of the accidental part. So, I mean, looking back at when I was a child, I don't think I would have called myself a science fiction reader. And certainly I didn't grow up reading like the classics like Heinlein and Clark and all that kind of stuff. I read all of that when I was in grad school, in fact. Um, I did read a lot of comic books when I was a kid, and so there obviously were some hints that I would be interested in this kind of thing. I used to love the Teen Titans, um, which is probably embarrassing to say in public, but there you have it. And um, and I really did love Star Trek, too, actually. I was quite into the Star Trek series, but I didn't necessarily generalize beyond that. Um, and then when I went to grad school, I... Um, was went basically plant, thinking that I would study a very sort of traditional kind of um, literary degree. I was very interested in literature and the history of ideas. But then I took this course when I was in doing my MA um, that was called Feminist Theories of the Body, uh, taught by a professor named Joanne Wallace. And it was like the most amazing experience for me. Like that course changed my life, um, literally. I was so excited by the questions we were asking, by this kind of philosophical approach. It was in the sort of 1990s so it was a very um there was a real turn in critical theory towards thinking about embodiment and the relationship between mind and body and thinking about different genders and different kinds of sexualities and so i completely changed all my ideas about what i wanted to write my phd about and basically came up with this big kind of theoretical set of chapters that i wanted to write about all these ideas uh, and then I was told, like, well, if this is the English department, you need some books. And it turns <laughs> out the books that were, they were asking these questions were science fiction books. So that's mm. actually how I started to get interested in science fiction. That's when I started reading the history. This is actually one of the reasons that I co-wrote the history of science fiction that I co-wrote, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago now. Um, in part, I took on that project because I needed to learn that history better myself. Mm. Because I, it's a good way to force my, yourself. Yeah, to force myself. It. Because I mean, I, when I came to my PhD, I was really, um, it was the in the '90s again. They were mapping the human genome project. I got super interested in that. I got very interested in science fiction that was responding to that. And so I was deeply, deeply read in '80s and '90s science fiction. But I didn't really know that history until I started working on that that book. Yeah, and who were some of the early voices that just really stuck out to you as ones that either you enjoyed their ideas or you just enjoyed their work? Like, who, who really stuck out to you in the early days? Yeah, I mean, basically you can tell because I wrote chapters on them. So um, so Octavia Butler was someone, uh, everybody knows her now, but back when I was writing on her for my PhD, she was, she was known within science fiction communities, but less written about than some other writers. And she mm -hmm. wasn't yet really being talked about by sort of mainstream African-American literary studies. Whereas now she's like one of the hugest figures in the whole entire field of black cultural studies, I would say. So yeah. Octavia Butler, um, Pat Cadigan's work I really loved, uh, Gwyneth Jones' work I really loved. Um, uh, Jack Womack, who doesn't get talked about very much anymore, but I I loved um, his whole, um, what is it, Dryco series. Um, 
especially random acts of senseless violence, which I ended up writing on for a chapter. Um, I, I also worked a little bit on Stevenson's work because this was like right at the beginning of his career. So I was reading Snow Crash before there was Second Life and stuff like that. Um, and I've continued to really like Stevenson's work because I, I do still retain that kind of um, hard science interest in people that are extrapolating from real technologies and stuff like that. Um, Gwyneth right. Jones, a British writer, again, not so well known, I think, but I think her work is just amazing. Um, so those were the, the voices that most excited me at first. And I know they're like atypical ones. And, mm -hmm. But it was later when I was like learning the history that I went back and read, for example, Philip K. Dick and did come to love him too, since I realized I should say that in this context. But I, I truly do love um, his his works, his sort of sense of the um, instability of reality, the sort of forces larger than oneself that are constraining the ways we can understand and grasp the world, all of that really speaks to me. We'll, we'll, we'll get to Dick. We'll have plenty of time to talk about him. So, but we can talk about other people too. Like, what you know, um, so where were you studying? Uh, um, where were you in grad school? I was studying at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, and my the person I was studying with was Douglas Farber, who um, even even less fashionably than me, because even when I was doing this in the 90s, it wasn't super fashionable to do science fiction. But he had actually written a book on Delaney and Russ and Le Guin that was published in the late 70s or early 80s. And so he was even more ahead of the curve in terms of doing academic work on science fiction before it became fashionable. Right, right. Um it definitely, uh, when like McNeely was doing it at Cal State Fullerton, and the <laughs> that nobody was doing that, and it was like yeah. that's it's, you know it's why the collection there is named after him. But yeah. um, and uh, so here's before you ended up at Riverside and started doing this. Um, I mean, there were you were right. There wasn't a lot of. There's a lot more people studying science fiction now. There's more of an academic community. Your Lisa Yazics, your your D Harlan Wilsons, and people that have been on the podcast before, you know, we definitely go to these academics um, and love to hear from you guys. But when you were doing, when you started doing this, there wasn't a lot of people. There wasn't as big of a community for it as there is today. So, um, did, I mean, it must have felt like you were blazing a trail a little bit um, doing it, doing this work back then, right? I, I would assume. I mean, I think. For me, personally, at least, it maybe felt a little less like blazing a trail and more like I was following my own intellectual preoccupations, perhaps to the detriment of my career. <laughs> like, as it turned out, it, it worked out for me, but I was certainly advised multiple times that I could be strategically making different choices. But, um, you know, I really wanted to follow what I had a passion for intellectually, because otherwise it's just too hard to do this work. And, you know, people like... like um, Lisa Yazek and D. Harlan Wilson were contemporaries, so they were also doing this at the same time. So I don't mean to suggest like there wasn't a community. There were certainly conferences mm -hmm. to go to. The journal Science Fiction Studies, which I'm now a co-editor for, was founded in 1973, and it was an extremely well-respected journal. The journal Extrapolation was founded even earlier than that. So there was a field, and there were um, there was a community of scholars interested in these questions. What there wasn't yeah. really was jobs in science fiction. <laughs> right. And, and so there wasn't a lot of support from within the academy that this was 
the best way to situate yourself in your career. And and I think that has, has also changed now in a way that, I mean, one of the great things for me in my current role at Riverside is working with all my wonderful graduate students and seeing the really exciting projects that they're doing. And I think there are jobs for the kind of work that they're doing in speculative fiction now because there's a greater recognition of what an important genre it is or what an important set of representational practices it offers for things that we have to come to terms with in the 21st century. Right. And, uh, you know, it's funny because when uh, because I read his letters and go through all that the stuff when uh, when PKD was making the decision to move to Orange County, part of it was, you know, he mentioned that McNeely was studying science fiction and that just the idea that he was studying and teaching science fiction and offering saying like, hey, you can come speak to my classes was, was like one of the things that motivated him to move to Orange County. You know, yeah. I mean, does seem also to, to get away from drugs, but yes. Yeah, I don't know how well you get away from drugs in Orange County, but I guess I don't. But Cal- I mean, California for him, is it was. <laughs> a place for it because the the Eaton Collection, which is the collection that's held at Riverside, um, you know, it was founded in 1967. It didn't really grow to the size it is now until much later. But again, like this was just the very very earliest days of people being interested in these kinds of things in a scholarly community. And California was really at the heart of a lot of it, in part because I think there's a lot of really important writers that came out of California, especially the sort of SoCal um, science fiction writers community around Los Angeles, of which Dick was a part at various times. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think also because, um, you know, in the 60s is also the first kind of wave of uh, Silicon Valley IT kind of things. It's not what we think of now when we think of Silicon Valley because it's still like, you know, the days of mainframes and things like that. But it is, um, you know, the Jet Propulsion Laboratories here. Like there's a lot of like futurism and science that's in this sort of brew here in California. Right. And and I do think that, you know, I'm, I'm just, that Eden collection, I mean, that's a huge part probably of what at when you when you ended up at UC Riverside, you must have been very excited to have access to that and to to you know and to the tradition that's there. That Riverside has a tradition, right? Yeah, in fact, that's precisely why I ended up at Riverside. Actually, I um, uh, didn't necessarily have plans to move to California. It sounded like kind of a a dreamy thing to do, but not something that you do in your real life. But because the collection was here the person um, at the time that I was hired, who was the dean of the college, um, uh, Stephen Cullenberg, he uh, came up with a plan that he wanted to hire, he wanted to recruit people specifically to work on science fiction at UC Riverside so that we could develop a, a program of academic excellence that would match the sort of library's holdings of the Eaton collection. And so Nell Hopkinson was also hired. She, I worked together with her for a decade. She just left this past year to go on to a new job at the University of British Columbia. Um, and then in, uh, since I've been hired, I've been now 10 years building this program. Um, John Jennings, who is a really important um, Afrofuturist artist and scholar who works a lot. And on my other podcast. Uh, yeah, so yeah. you know John, so he's yep. here. Um, Andre Carrington, um, who wrote a book called Speculative Blackness uh, and does a lot of work on fandom and black culture and queer culture and speculative fiction is with us. 
And starting in, um, well, I guess we are in July. So starting this July, although we'll really get going in September when the students come to school, we also just hired a young new scholar named Jalandra Davis, who works on uh, fantasy and Afrofuturism. So we have like a lot of great people that are helping to build this specific um, academic program at UC Riverside. It's, it's cool and important work. I. I totally respect you guys that, um, you know, I just do this as a hobby now. Uh, and, well, I mean, uh, I, could, I could say to your viewers, if, if they're interested in this kind of thing, um, in order to access the, the special collection at Riverside, all you need is some kind of ID. And you can come. They can't ever leave the, the room, the special collection room, but anybody who is interested in coming and reading and working on these materials can and... We have, like, as you say, like so many stories that are lost or like really old magazines that are hard to find anymore. We have a great collection of materials produced by the fans themselves. When I was working on my history of science fiction, I did a lot of reading in the fandom archive and you get to read like the newsletters that came out every month and you can see how these people are like arguing with one another <laughs> and having like we like, do instantaneously. Yeah. Now. So now yeah. it's like, it's like the Twitter of the 1930s basically. <laughs> Right, and did you, being from Canada, did you research at the Merrill Collection? Did you do any of that, or? I, I did, and in fact, I had been to Riverside before I ever got hired here, I because the science fiction history was already out by the time I got hired here, so I had actually come to Riverside and stayed here for about six weeks and worked in the collection here, but I lived close enough that I could go, like, any weekend I wanted to the Merrill Collection and, and did a lot of my, a lot of the research for the Animal Territy book actually happened at the Merrill Collection in Toronto. That's awesome. Um, yeah, every, everyone here knows I'm a, I'm a big uh, uh, Merrill fan, so I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, and I will, if people have not listened to our panel on Judith Merrill, it, it's out there. Um, yeah, she's an amazing force in the field. Amazing woman. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And um, I and I, I just uh, totally res respect everything that she did. Okay. On that note, um, we're gonna get into doing Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. But do you have other works by Philip K. Dick that you're particularly fan of? You know, because uh, I've seen your writing about Androids, but I haven't really seen much else that you've commented on. Just out of interest, do you have any other ones that are are really big in, in your personal canon? I'm trying to decide if there's others I've written on. Like, I honestly kind of can't remember, which is sad. But, um, but I do, I mean, the androids really interest me. And obviously I wrote on Do Androids Dream because I was interested in, in the animals and the, the way animals and electric animals show up in that book. But I also love, like, I like Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said... Um, and I, and I like, um, you know, we can build you like all those sort of anything that's about kind of like altered reality or memory or uncertainty. Like, I just feel Dick, he was ahead of his time in certain kinds of ways because he, he spoke very compellingly about the kind of disorientation that by the 90s we were calling like the postmodern experience, right? But he was writing about it in the 60s and the 70s. And so um, I don't know, I don't think I've published anything on any of those other works, but um, they're ones that I do like to read. And I like his short fiction too. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I probably mentioned things like, you know, autofac here and there or um, stories like that. Cause I think he does, like he, he captures a sensibility um, 
that spoke very much to me and my sense of the world. So yeah, that was a very yeah. rambling answer. I apologize. No, 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 that's good. Um, well, it's funny too because we're we're covering everything in chronological order, and we've just done Scanner Darkly, and we're, you know, we slowed down a little bit just to like kind of because we we realized we were getting really close to the end, and uh, but it was funny because throughout this process, I think we also learned that if you read BKD in order of how it was released, you get a really different impression on certain things too, like. Ubik wasn't as genius to me because I'd read Eye in the Sky and Three Stigmata and I felt like he had done Private Cosmos, you know, a bunch of times before. But when people read Ubik first, they're just like blown away and their their minds are blown. And it's interesting to have that experience of seeing how he works it out. And now that I'm digging through all of his outlines and everything, it's funny seeing him be in conversation with himself and his old stories. No, um, in fact, I can't believe I forgot to mention Ubik because it's, I haven't written on it yet, but I've taught it multiple times. I love to teach that book. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm going to write something on it in the fall because I was invited by some political theorists that they want to do a roundtable symposium for this journal of political theory that picks a book and has everybody write short roundtable piece, pieces about it. And they picked Ubik. So, so Dick to be found by people in new fields all the time. Yeah. Well, as we do this interview, it's funny because we're going to be talking a lot about Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, but I am neck deep in Ubik right now. So for my writing, so like I'm thinking about Ubik like like about 18 hours a day right now. So, <laughs> so um, I, I'm interested to see what you guys come up with. But um, of course, I'd probably be moved on by then. But um, but right now, as we do this interview, I'm like really in Ubik land. And um, but last month, I was in Do Androids Dreamland <laughs> because we did everything for the 40th anniversary, and I stopped everything else, and we did a whole one city one read with our bookstore here in town. And uh, so I was really, really diving back into this, and that's when I when I found. Um, your article, Speciesism and Species Being, and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Don't worry, I have quotes from it to help refresh <laughs> your memory. Um, but let's talk about animals and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Because here's the thing. As a person who has been an animal rights activist and been a vegan for 30 years, when I the last two times I, I've read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep four times now, and the second and third time, I thought to myself, I'm looking, I'm seeing this animal rights themes because it's me, and it's probably not as deep as I'm thinking it is. And this last time is when I finally just admitted to myself, no, it's not me. He was really thinking deeply about these issues, right? And he, he was, it was really important to him, the animal issues. So, um, I'm just wondering your experience with reading this book. Were you shocked at how many how many animal themes were in it when you first read it? And when did you first read Do, Do Androids Dream? Was that in grad school? It would have been in grad school for sure. I'm trying to decide if I read it before I started working on animals in science fiction. I probably did because the first book I wrote, which which started out as my PhD, so was the book on sort of embodiment in science fiction. Mm -hmm. And so when I first started reading everything that in some way touched on embodiment uh, was the fiction I was most seeking out. So 
I probably did read Do Androids Dream then, but I didn't decide to write about it for my thesis. So, and, and I honestly can't really remember what my first impression was, but I suspect since I decided not to write on it, but I, I did decide to write on some other things that, that in some ways touched on some more themes. I think it's probably like in first reading, maybe the animals seem too much in the background to me or something like um, they're there. But when I when I reread it and, and then wrote that um, essay you referred to, which was one of the early things I did bef as I was starting to work on this book, um, I was what I was shocked by was that once I turned to it, because as I said, people were like, oh, I don't think you're going to find that many animals in science fiction, but good luck with your book. Um, so right. then, and then I was like, well, I know there's animals in Do Android's Dream, so I immediately went to that. And then as I was working on that paper, what I was sort of shocked to discover is that, well, it's like extensively published on, there's so much published on Philip K. Dick, that the animals are not really mentioned in much of the scholarship. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, in some ways, maybe that's unsurprising because as I do kind of explore in, in the animal authority book, like one of the functions, I guess, that animals have in Western cultural imaginaries is like they they're this boundary between those that are sort of deemed to have um, deemed to be human and they have like rights and you can't just kill them and things like that and then there's there's like living beings that you can sort of dispose of in any way that you want and they're called animals and obviously like um, what Dick's interested in in androids is is that same kind of question right things that like mm. human animal boundary like, which we're yeah. going to talk a lot about. Yeah, so it's like beings that seem to be just like us, they seem to have feelings and volition, and I mean, they're actually humanoid too, but yet it's okay to like do anything to them. And yeah. so like that kind of um, metaphor as a metaphor for the dehumanization that happens to people of color or the dehumanization that happens to the working classes, um, all the ways that we don't fully acknowledge the humanity of lots of homo sapiens, I think that tended to interest critics a lot more than thinking of that, not metaphorically, but thinking of it in terms of actual animals. And it was really the questions of the Voight contest that really were my way into realizing that actual animals are there for Dick as well, right? Because the, the questions in the Voight contest that are supposed to reveal your sort of android depravity, often mm -hmm. they're ones about stuff we do every day, right? Like. Yeah. Everyone, yeah. <laughs> most people would fail the Voight-Kopf test. Precisely, and, precisely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what I think is interesting is that he thought about these things, but he didn't, like, it's not like, I want to be clear, it's not like Phil was like a vegan warrior, like, you know, like, he he thought about these things, and they were philosophical arguments, but I think for him, the whole animal thing was an outgrowth of the idea that we're killing the world and and just like putting a stark value between I think the bottom line or one of the most important things in the in the book is the difference in value and how animals are a commodity still in this world and you get five andes versus one sheep is one of the most important things that he talks about in that book I'm wondering how you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the way that animals are commodified and sort of, uh, and the damage that does to actual animals, that, that concerns me as someone who cares about animals. 
but in a sort of deeper, uh, both intellectual and political way, I think it, precisely as you say, like what what's at stake in Dick's work is the sort of erosion of our own capacity to be decent human beings that's embodied by the callous way that we treat others through commodification. Um, and that's really, I mean, the um, cover of Animal Entirety, um, my publisher didn't really like the title and they also didn't really like the cover, but I also insisted on that cover, I really wanted that cover, because that sort of barcode blurring with the animal to me gets precisely at this sort of, um, you know, everything is consumable, everything can be used up kind of attitude that dominates in the West and that has led to environmental crises and species extinction and and factory farming and all, all sorts of like atrocities against um, humans and animals and just sort of like ecosystems as a whole. So I think that the way Dick approaches it through that rubric is consistent with what I think is important about this area of scholarship. Um, mm -hmm. And then, as you say, like it, people have to negotiate their own ethical choices and how they live. He he made different choices. Um, I also don't eat animals, but I'm also aware, like you know, I eat a lot of fruits that are harvested as monocultural crops by people who aren't paid properly. So I mean, there's like a lot of ethics to to consumption sure. under capitalist modernity that there's just no good choices. Even if you try to grow your own food, there's nowhere left to grow it anymore for most of us. So. Right, right. And and I do think he came back to – it's funny because when I think of the Voight-Kampf questions, I think some of the origins of those were, were, was the, the eating the horse meat, specifically because I think, you know, he was thinking about how people judged him for doing that partially because people put more value on horses – and he, he he wrote about that again with Ballas and having the character named Horse Lover Fat. And I, I think that, like, I think he hung on to that idea or I think some of the seeds of that w were in that. And I do think that's why he mentions uh, Happy Dog Pet Shop in, in the book again. Now, another book that I want to talk about in connection to this and one that I'm going to recommend the dickheads read and track down is Conditionally Human by Walter Miller who we've covered on the podcast before with uh, when we had Brian Evanson on to talk about Canical for Leibowitz. And, um, you know, which is, you know, one of my all-time favorite science fiction novels. And it was funny because I had just recently bought a copy of Conditionally, the three uh, novella collection. And then I literally bought it the day before I started reading your book. And so when <laughs> you started talking about that novella, I was like, okay, that's a sign. I got to read it. And I put down your book and uh, read Walter Miller's book. And I recommend people go read that, um, but I'm not going to spoil anything that I think makes it unreadable. Um, but that novella by Walter Miller is very much an animal rights-themed novella, although it was written in 1952. I believe Galaxy Magazine, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but this story is about... Um, Animals that it takes place in a future very similar to Do Androids Dream in that you know people are not allowed to reproduce because there's overpopulation, there's a lot of uh, environmental destruction, there's no nuclear, there's no World War terminus, but it's very similar and it has almost the same exact opening scene 
where the main character, who's a dog catcher, is accused of murder by his spouse. And um, you and I talked about this before we started recording. I believe firmly that this is an influence on Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Tessa has told me and uh, that Kinnacle for Leibowitz was, was a favorite of Phil's. Um, and we know that he was influenced by a lot of these writers and that um, in his outlines he references other stories. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this story, Conditionally Human, because I really do believe this was an influence on Android's dream, a lot of the ways that ethics are argued in this story. Yeah, so I'll try to talk about it without giving away spoilers, um, which means I'll be a little vague, but... Um, I, it wasn't really like a line of, of uh, research I was pursuing when I worked on the book, so I didn't do any investigating to see if Dick would have had a chance to read it or not. But right, certainly, that's a um, more that's I'm I'm the writer. I'm <laughs> you the do that. Writer yeah. guy. Yeah. But I mean, certainly um, Walter Miller was a very well known writer of the time. I mean, his reputation was probably in some ways he was more famous than Dick at the time of Dick's life. Absolutely. Dick's star has risen tremendously since his death. Um, so, I mean, there's every reason to believe Dick would have been familiar with it. It is, um, you know, very similarly about the kind of ethics of um, who we can kill and what it means that some beings are deemed killable. And it does open that kind of... Um, possibility of familial or kin relations across species too and gets at the kind of schizophrenia that um you know the um horse eating horse meat eating example perhaps speaks to as well in the sense that there's certain animals that it's quite normalized in the west to eat them so nobody blinks when you talk about eating like chickens or or cattle but people maybe are like, oh, a horse, like horses are pets, or you, you, you know, you... Um, if, or dogs or cats, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, and so there's a, a way in which we have a kind of schizophrenic attitude towards animals, right? Some of them we, like, massively slaughter without blinking an eye, and then we, like, get little baby outfits and dress our pets up in them and make them part of the family. And horses are really interestingly... I mean, they, um, prior to sort of automobiles, um, were a massive part of the kind of in industrial infrastructure and were working animals and probably not sentimentalized in the same way. And now that we sentimentalize them, so that is a kind of meat eating that's perhaps called into question. And I think that's the sort of space that Walter Miller's book explores, right? That kind of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And certainly the schizophrenic is something that interests Dick and many right. many registers. <laughs> well, in, in in the story, conditionally human. There, so there's these animals, the neutroids, who are engineered to be able to speak, to have emotions, to be closer to human. And there's various levels of them. And so it and and there and basically the main character goes through a lot of the same journey that Deckard does. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why I, I think. It's um, now he comes to a different conclusion, which we're not going to spoil, but which, which is a very interesting one. But it, at the same time, it's it's very interesting. Um, just because I look at Dick as I look at him from the writer perspective, I'm always interested in where his ideas come from and how he formulates ideas. And I definitely think that this um, that Do Android's Dream is a is a bit of a response. Um, to this one, and I think that they 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 are really good companion pieces to read together and to think about. So. Yeah, 
No, that makes a lot of sense. And especially, I mean, Conditionally Human, like many, many of the stories that I found, has a special place for primates. So there's a sort of narcissism, I think, in how humans like to think of which animals that we want to be kind to. <laughs> yes. And right. and I think, you know, it's well established that Dick became interested in the animatronics at Disneyland and that that, you know, there's there's an element of that that shows up in, in the androids being imagined instead of the modified animals as pets. And I mean, other people were writing, like Cordwinder Smith was writing stories about modified animals contemporary with this. Like it, there, there were other people asking these kinds of questions. Yeah. Yeah. And so and, and so in Do Androids Dream, where it's a little different from the Miller story or one of the things that's a very Philip K. Dick thing. And he's very underrated for his humor because his books are hilarious and people forget because like Blade Runner does the animal commodity thing, but so subtle that people don't even notice it if they're not fans of the book. So, you know, like the owl's scrappy, for example, that's in the novel, he's there in the movie but he's just barely referenced. And so one of the things that's interesting to me is the whole keeping up with the Joneses aspect of, you know, you know, like that hilarious scene where he's talking to his neighbor, you know, and he's like, maybe you just need a, a squirrel, you know, <laughs> or, or whatever, you know, and, there, and, and all those scenes with the keeping up with the Joneses thing was, was something that was not unconditionally human, but it was something that was very, very Philip K. Dick, um, you know, kind of satire. And I, I think that that's one aspect of the animal themes that get kind of gets overlooked sometimes because it is funny, but it's talking about the commodification of um, even the love of animals, which we see like, you know, toys for pets are a huge industry. And, you know, when you see some of the ads that are targeting, like, our love for our animals, well, yeah, of course we love our companion animals, but, you know, the way it gets commodified. I don't know. Anyways, the keeping up with the Joneses thing, how do you feel about that as being, like, one of the themes of the, of the book, and how does that fit into the greater science fiction? I, mean, I think you're, you're right that the animals really, other than as decoration, they really drop out of Blade Runner. And then in some ways, the reputation of Blade Runner has overshadowed New Android's dream. And I think that encourages people reading the books to similarly overlook the animals. Um, that whole kind of hierarchy of species thing, like goat versus a sheep and all that. I mean, it is funny, but I think it also speaks to the kind of hollowness of the values of consumerism that Dick's trying to critique, right? Because um, mm -hmm. at the end, he finds a toad, which is definitely lower on the hierarchy than either of the animals that he's he's been able to imagine owning previously. Um, and furthermore, at least in my reading of the book, he has to come to terms with the fact that it's worth loving the toad, even if it's electric. Um, which, by the way, and this is something that this is the difference between what I research and what you research. I know for a fact that he wanted to call the novel The Electric Toad. Oh. <laughs> initially. That and would like, reinforce my reading, I think, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But that's what yeah. I'm saying is, is that the, the, to, to him, the toad at the end is a hugely important part of it that gets overlooked quite often. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny because when we did our... 40th anniversary event like we, we I, everyone was kind of giving me crap because I talk so much about the toad <laughs> at that but the toad is so important 
No, because... I mean, I think that's the whole point, right? Like, it's about the the capacity to be nurturing. And if, and if you're, and this is sort of part of my argument about the book overall, is that that whole sense of, if he wants the animal as a status symbol, if he wants the animal as a commodity, he's missing the point. So maybe he's going to own a live animal and maybe he'll do a great job of taking care of it. But it's the same as if he owned like a big screen TV or like a fancy sports car, um, that it's just another commodity and a status symbol. Whereas caring for the toad is something about like the capacity to put oneself at service of the living world. Um, And, and, if all we have left is an ersatz version of the living world, it still serves our souls better to nurture that um, than to, you know, treat right. it as disposable. Yeah. Well, and your book uh, talks a lot about the human-animal boundary, and I think the human-animal boundary, well, not as clear <laughs> in um, Do Androids Dream as maybe Walter Miller's novella, it is such a huge part of what's going on in Do Android's Dream because it's a metaphor for what for the human replicate or the human Andy boundary. And because it's a parallel track, what he's doing is he's, you know, testing Deckard's you know, what is human with what is what is the human animal boundary. I mean, it's so important to, to the novel and that's uh you know you know why why I think it's important to, to talk about that boundary and how it fits into science fiction, not just Do Android's Dream, but a lot of, of novels, especially ones that write about alien animals, which, you know, um, they that is where the boundary gets tested in science fiction throughout the entire history of science fiction. Yeah, when I was working on that book, I found... Um a lot of great really early stories that would like play with the idea that we would have contact with aliens and they would see us as animals. And so the the sort of, just like the sort of um, H.G. Wells reversal of colonization that happens in War of the Worlds, where it's like, you know, what happens when you're the ones colonized? I think there was some really interesting early science fiction, like the, um, the human pets of Mars, for example, where you know, the, the cultural function of that boundary between um, living beings that have to be treated in a certain way and living beings that can be treated as disposable. When you bring aliens into the mix and they see themselves as like the people in the story and don't necessarily see humans as people, I think that that's one way that science fiction can really help reframe how we think about um, that boundary. And then, I mean, I'll try not to get too boringly philosophical, but... Um, a lot of the kind of critical work that I'm drawing on is really talking about how important that boundary has been throughout um, Western intellectual history, and particularly the sort of um, stupidity, essentially, of it as this um, binary, where you have humans on one side, um, and in fact, even though humans are supposedly on one side, of course, there's like a whole history of racism and colonialism and sexism and classism by which some humans are like higher than other humans. Um, And then you have all of animals on the other side. And so it's sort of like everything from like a microbe to a chimpanzee is in one ethical category. And then everything that's homo sapien is in a different ethical category. Like that's a very blunt and not really refined or intellectually rigorous um, uh, underpinning for one's ethics. And that's kind of the whole point of questioning this boundary all the time. In the 
late 80s, there was a novel called Through Darkest America by Neil Barrett Jr. Oh, I know that. You've never heard of that? Yeah, Isaac Asimov presented it, and it was weird. But And it got lost, but the whole book is a post-apocalyptic novel about a cattle drive where stock humans who are bred to be unintelligent, who are called stock, are used for meat because all the animals have died out. And uh, by the way, this is a book that I have wanted to adapt (laughs) in the screenplay because I think it's incredible. But and the whole book is about a guy falling in love with a, a woman who, who who's a stock animal. Um, huh, I'll have to check that out. And I mean, interesting, like how how early that was, because of course um, uh, Michelle Febres Under the Skin has um, that idea, right? That that aliens come and they're um, gathering us together as stock. It's a little less there in the film adaptation because the film adaptation is so like esoteric and unusual, um, but it's very present in the novel. And I mean, that's, when does the novel come out? Like 2004 or five, maybe? Like much, much later. So it's interesting that that idea is there in science fiction much earlier. Yeah, um, it's, a re- it's a really underrated book. And it had a sequel that was, that I, I didn't think it sold enough to have a sequel, but it had a sequel. <laughs> It was quite, not quite as effective, um, but uh, just as an animal rights person, when I read it, I just my mind was blown. Like reading it, like how, how well it explored. The, yeah, the, the, and there's more. There's a lot uh, more in the horror genre these days, but there's a lot of like uh, uh, animals or sort of humans as meat kind of stories that get get told now. One that I find really really interesting that I published on elsewhere outside of the book is. Uh, by a Canadian writer named Don LePan, um, and it's just called Animals, and it's about a, a future where, um, uh, like in Do Androids Dream, most of the animals have died out, so there's no animals left to eat, and so certain sort of um, uh, intellectually and otherwise disabled humans are deemed not human enough to be human, and they become the meat source, and the novel's about sort of interrogating that that formation of um, prejudice and discrimination to support a culture that can't imagine itself outside of meat eating, basically. Right. And so, well, and it's funny, too, because if we look at... Now, another, one other aspect of Do Androids Dream that we haven't gotten into is the empathy boxes and mercerism and the mood organs, which fall into your bodies and technology. So, you know, what have you... Um, commented on those because I think those are also underrated aspects of this novel. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think like I I place the blame for that. I guess if blame it is to be with Blade Runner because it's also things that drop out of the narrative with Blade Runner. So Deckard still kind of undergoes a transformation, but it's much more about sort of individual romantic love that really comes across as kind of rapey. Now <laughs> that scene definitely does not hold up very well in retrospect. No, no, terrible. Yeah, no, and I feel like that's really um, much closer to what Dick actually was interested in, just like the Toad is much closer to what Dick was actually interested in. And I think what's particularly interesting about Mercer is that the empathy can be real even if Mercer's a fake, right? And that, again, aligns with the Toad. And so 
um, it's really not a question of ontology for Dick. It's it's not a question of like, is this a real thing or a stage performance? Is the toad electric or is the toad organic? But it's about like what kind of social relations do we set in motion by our choices and and how mm-hmm. to respond to these it's, things. It's another parallel tract in the story of what's real and what isn't real and and. Um, uh, yeah, and what's real is not as like easy a question to answer as it might appear at first glance, right? Right, and Mercer being a um, out of work actor from Indiana. Of course, I'm <laughs> from Indiana, so I like that. But, but you know, th- this idea that you know, which by, by the way is way before Iron Man three, um, <laughs> right? But uh, I I think it's also underrated for how funny it is that you know Mercer is Mercerism all comes from this kind of fake idea of this out-of-work actor. It's interesting. But the mood organs, like, it, that's something he plays with all the time. Like, I know, and I just saw in Ubik today, there's a scene where he's, like, dialing the homeopaves, or the news, the homeopaves for, uh, for gossip. Like, he's dialing it, like, oh, dial gossip to five, right? And I think the mood organs, that whole scene where he's, like... When they're fighting and he's like, did you, did you sweat, you know, dial something really different today or, or, you know, and she's like, oh, you do this. I'm going to dial really, you know, a real heavy anger. And uh, like all those scenes, I think are really interesting because we see how like technology affects us now, how like, you know, just being on Twitter for a few minutes can like change your attitude. Right. And so here's this device early in television, by the way, you know, I mean, television had only been around for like less than 20 years at that point. And again, going to Berkeley, I saw the ads for the store that he worked at selling the first TVs during the era that he worked there. So he was seeing TVs on the ground selling them at his record store on Shattuck, uh, like early on. So I think he thought a lot about how TV and media and all those things manipulate it manipulates thoughts so i'm just interested in how you know in the history of science fiction it blends in with how technology is involved in in our emotions right so yeah no i mean there's that's one of the ways that i do see dick is a really kind of prescient writer that you know his fame came much later and it's because people finally sort of got his books once they were living sort of mediated in all these sort of simulated realities in a way that he saw coming um, 20 years before. Uh, I think the mood order, I mean, it's it's interesting for so many reasons. Like one is the sort of um, the fakeness of emotion that keeps you from having to deal with the sort of material consequences of the world. I think we see that in like an over prescription of um, things like Prozac, but also in the way that it's now sort of established that various kinds of social media pings and things are like addictive and we spend all our time kind of immersed in these worlds of getting like likes or pings or this or that and that not only is it maybe sort of damaging us to be in these addictive kinds of um uh ways that our emotions are being manipulated whether it's by drugs or whether it's by pings but also as his fight with his wife iran shows like maybe it's actually really good to be depressed when you're living in a dying world it's not pleasant but maybe you're only gonna. Maybe it's okay. Way yeah. To well, and yeah. maybe you're only gonna sort of um, be inclined to maybe do something to have it die a little more slowly if you actually have to feel what it is to be in a dying world. 
And if you're always sort of medicating yourself to feel better, no matter what's happening, things can just get worse and worse and worse. So in some ways I see sort of the cultivation of empathy as the like other pull to the sort of mood organ, which allows you to sort of um, not deal with the, um, the consequences of the material reality that you're in. And then there's, I mean, the science fiction has always been interested in sort of envisioning new communication technologies. There's a really excellent book called um, The Perversity of Things, um, edited by Grant Whitehoff, which is about um, Hugo Gernsback and all his columns he wrote about like ham radios and tinkering with radios. He actually wrote a few things about television in the early days of experimental television before there were regular broadcasts. So there's like a kind of a long history of sort of media theories of communication and what that means for the social environment being taken up by science fiction. Yeah. And then that, of course, there's like the Silicon Valley relationship to science fiction. I mean, I could go on and on. So Yeah, I just picked up the um, uh, TV 2000 book from the 80s that's like writing about what TV is going to be like in, in the year 2000. And I'm very excited to read what... <laughs> What everybody did in that, uh, just just out of curiosity, because I think how sci-fi reflected technology in the past is one of the reasons why I like reading out-of-date science fiction. And yeah. um, and uh, a long-time homie of the podcast, uh, John Shirley, and he and I recently, because I, I always give him a hard time because he wants to update all of his old novels um, for technology and politics, and I'm always telling him, no, don't you do that. Don't you That's do better. that. I agree with you. Like, um, I remember reading back when it first came out, reading Walter John Williams' Aristoi, which I don't know why, but I loved that book. I never did write on it, but when it first came out, I loved that book. And this idea that everyone was like meeting in these virtual spaces and they could customize them. And it all looked like wonderful to me. And I was like so excited for that future to come. But then when it comes, it's all like the return of like neo-Nazis and like stupid <laughs> right. wars and everything is not modified. as fun as we thought it was going to be yeah, yeah like i mean in some ways science fiction is right about our desire for these kinds of communicative technologies but especially the way that they got monetized and like how the monetization and the algorithms drove polarization like science fiction hadn't didn't see that coming at all yeah like, but but i will about. say and since i just mentioned him uh, John Shirley's uh, song called Youth Trilogy from the early 80s definitely predicted uh, neo-fascist, neo-right-wing uh, yes. conservatives. They and, absolutely did. Yeah, and he's, I, I gotta say, like, that's one thing that he's sad and proud of at the same time. Um, yeah, no, he was, and, and I mean, she wasn't as interested in sort of IT technologies, but Octavia Butler, too. Absolutely. Also, with, uh, the coming uh, future with... The with yeah. Yeah. With the same kind of clarity that Dick saw 20 years ahead of his time, she saw 20 years ahead of her time, yeah. Yeah, you know, the Trump era and Octavia Butler, like, is just, it. yeah. Yeah. You know, certain authors, like, um, I think John Bruner and Octavia Butler are some of the most prescient where you just, you just, you look at how well they saw things and you're just like, that is amazing. Especially, like, for Bruner, like, Shockwave Rider or, yeah. Uh, yeah. But he's anyways, so, I wish was better known too. He's his works are not so well known in North America, but he was just his political insights are crucial. So everyone yeah. should go and read John Bruner. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, so before we wrap up, as far as is there anything I'm missing on Do Androids Dream and Animal Rights that that we haven't talked about? Because I I think we talked about a lot of it, but um, I I think 
there's no shortage when because being that I've read it five times, you know, I found things this time I'd never seen before in a in a reading of it. I think you can keep finding these levels of of, of animal issues in it. But is there anything I'm missing for for Do Androids Dream that's important yeah. to you? I mean, I wouldn't say there's anything you're missing, but what I would say is that there's, um, in addition to Blade Runner, and then of course Blade Runner 2049, and all the the various like ancillary texts that came out, like because now there's like they're trying to fill in all the history between like 1982 and 2049, so there's a lot of Blade Runner texts out there. Mm-hmm. There's also um, Rosa Montero has uh, her Bruna Husky books. One is called, the first one is called Tears and Rain, and the second is called Weight of the Heart, that also extrapolate from Do Android's Dream, and in ways that I think are much closer to the novel and to the concerns that Dick had that we're talking about here, like precisely to concerns of commodification and empathy. You've got me sold now. <laughs> yeah, so I would highly recommend these books as a, a space where people are expanding the world that Dick imagined in ways that are more attentive to the kinds of things that we've highlighted in this conversation. I hear the sounds of listeners adding it on their Goodreads want to read <laughs> list right now. Um, I, yeah, especially, well, in your books as well. And um, where do you, uh, so where should people, where do you think they should go with your work first? Like, um, I, I greatly enjoyed this book um, and obviously because of the themes, of it, but this this was where I was starting with your work, and I and and uh, I'm, I'm intending to uh, make a section on my shelves for on, on <laughs> my sci-fi reference shelf here that goes back three levels. Um, I'm gonna find a spot for all of your work. So, what should people be reading? Well, I mean, I think it kind of depends what they want because there's no much like I accidentally fell into this career path. I just sort of figure out what I'm interested in, and then I write a book on it. So. Uh, the the guide to the perplexed book is really an overview of how I teach science fiction. So if you want to sort of have a sense of conversations around academia and science fiction, I'd go there. I did a short little book for MIT in their Essential Knowledge series that's just called Science Fiction: The Essential Knowledge, and it's really about how I think science fiction is super relevant to all kinds of problems facing us today, from like climate change to AI and the future of work to colonialism and the sort of um, legacies of that. So that's, those are all like kind of intro-y kind of books. If you're interested in the more um, sort of deeply footnoted scholarly stuff like Animal Alterity, uh, the, last year I published a book called um, Biopolitical Futures in 21st Century Speculative Fiction. That was not my preferred title, but this time I caved and let the publisher name it what they wanted to call it. I kind of love how uh, uh, <laughs> word salady and nerdy it is. To well, be it's because you, so. search engines, right? They wanted search engines to hit on all those words, whereas I, I wanted to call it living capital is what I wanted to call it. Well, no, that's a cool title, but, I, but <laughs> I, listen, I'm not above wanting like a title where when I say it, I can get like glossy eyed looks from the people who are like, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, so, I'm reading a really smart book. Right. So, so I mean, yeah, I don't think it's well titled, but it's all about commodification of the body, including animal bodies. And so if people are interested in that element, I'd read that. Yeah. Or, look, the, I, science fiction is still doing w- wonderful stuff with those issues. So, there's no end to 
where it, where it's going with those things, and especially like seeing some of the modern adaptations to it. Um, I particularly SB Divya's Machinehood last year, like for example. Yeah, um, I think that's an amazing book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, Cheryl, this was awesome. A very fascinating discussion. Um, I want people to find your work and find what you're doing. Um, are you a social media person or no? Because I I found I tracked you through the <laughs> university, so. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm an anti-social media person. Uh, I I grew up in a different era, and I like to think a lot more about my ideas before I put them out there. Well, so. Before you put them out there. <laughs> well, hey, that's I respect you for that. Um, yeah, I had to track you down through the university, but, but, um, um, but it's very easy to find me at the university, and and I'm like old school enough. I check my email frequently, so anyone can email me, and I will respond to emails. Well, and and by the way, was a that your article, the one that the the species being one, was sent to me by a listener um, of oh, this wow. podcast before. Like I was familiar. Like um, Dr. Yazik had definitely been telling me about your work, and that she had told me that you were a person I needed to have on the show like a long time ago. And then a listener sent me that article because they knew I was working on an article about animal rights and two androids dream of electric sheep, which I'm still working on. But yeah, so uh, thank you for joining us. And um, uh, people like could, uh, also do you? I mean, they could look into going to if they want to study science fiction and end up at UC Riverside. They could have you as a teacher too. So <laughs> and we have. Not just me, we have a great community of students, graduate students, other scholars. It's a really vibrant place if you're interested in sort of science fiction as a, as a literature that helps us grapple with what we're facing today. And how do people access the archive too? That they just, because I, I know this, but I, I want the listeners to know. Um, so if you want to work in the Eden Archive, um, it's probably best to email the library first and sort of say your dates to make sure that they that the what their opening hours are because we have staff cutbacks especially in the mm -hmm. summer so the opening hours vary. But all you got to do is come. It's in the Rivera Library on campus. You can go to the kiosk in parking lot one and get a parking permit. Go to the library. It's on the fourth floor. And if you show you have any kind of ID, um, they'll sign you in and then you tell them what you want to see and they'll bring it out and you can see it. I suggest two things. Look at the archive ahead of time. Know what you want to request. And bring a, bring a card again because it's going to be like 110 degrees outdoors, but it's very chilly in the library. <laughs> that is great advice. That is very good advice. All right, Cheryl, thank you for joining us today on the Dickheads podcast. Um, I really appreciate it. And as always, listeners, keep paranoid.